Uh, we are continuing in the book of Jonah, so go ahead and grab your Bibles and let's flip over to the book of Jonah. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chairs around you. And uh, in our Bibles, we're going over to page uh, 774. Um, and if you're using one of our study books to take notes, you're going to be going over to page 63. Um, last week, we, uh, we saw this reluctant prophet finally make his way into Nineveh after having been vomited up on the shore. He, he preached the message that had been entrusted to him. Um, and uh, today, our, our reluctant prophet is going to become a resentful prophet um, because God's at work in ways he doesn't like. And here's the thing, God's not done working on Jonah's heart. Um, Jonah gladly received grace. God now wants him to grow in that grace. And, um, and that's a lesson here that he's really having a hard time uh, grabbing and running with. And it's this, that you have to share grace to grow in grace. Uh, he wants the benefit of grace, but, um, but, but he doesn't want to share it. And here's the thing, we have to share grace if we want to grow in grace. So let's take a look at uh, Jonah 3. Uh, we're going to look at 3, 4 through 4, 4. I will read out loud. You can follow along. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, today we get to read about and talk about what is possibly uh, the greatest miracle in the whole book of Jonah. Uh, it doesn't get as much attention, obviously, as the swallowing of the great fish, um, but it's pretty phenomenal. Jonah, the reluctant prophet, preaches a short message that had been entrusted to him by God. Uh, it is terse. It is five words in the Hebrew. Very simply, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the word overthrown um, can mean one of two things, right? Jonah was, was hoping it meant yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Um, but legitimately, it could also be taken yet 40 days and Nineveh will turn. Nineveh will repent. And... Um, and that's what happened, right? Jonah shows up, he walks through the city giving this incredibly short message, and uh, the entire nation repents. Um, from the king on down, they, they stop doing violence. And I don't, I don't know how violent a culture has to be for that to be the one directive from the king. Hey, y'all stop being so violent, right? Um, for God then to notice and be like, wow, they really did repent, right? So a lot going on here, but, but they repented. Um, they humbled themselves before a God they did not know. And verse 5 summarizes this, this, this response, right? When we, when we read in verse 5, it says, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. That's a summary. And then verses 6 through 9 explains kind of the chronology in that summary. That's the, the, it, it unpacks it a little bit, right? So when we look in 6 through 9, what we see is that the people responded first, 
um, the ruler, the leader, the king of Nineveh noticed this, um, and once he noticed it, he, he jumped on board, right? He, he, he decided to, uh, to join in as well. Um, and then he led authoritatively his nation through a process of public repentance, public prostration before this God, a, a public demonstration of, of humility, right? He required them to fast and to wear sackcloth um, and, uh, and to sit in ashes. Wearing sackcloth, sackcloth was a, a really rough uh, garment, like a sack. Um, only the very poor would wear sackcloth. Um, it was coarse, it was uncomfortable, um, and it was a sign when, when someone wore sackcloth of great grieving or, or great repentance. Sitting in ashes is the same thing. All of, the, all of the opulence I used to enjoy, all the benefits of life, I now forego and I sit in the ash heap because, because either I am in great sorrow and this is all I have left or I'm in great repentance and I recognize that I, I deserve nothing more. And he calls for a fast, right? Um, in fact, he's, he's so serious about it. He, requ- he requires the animals to do it too, um, which is weird, but it happened, right? It's like not just, hey, y'all, we're going we're gonna to fast from food and water. Your beasts are too, right? Don't put them out to graze. Lock them up, right? And put on sackcloth and put it on your beasts too, right? They had to wear it too, which I thought was really weird, um, but I looked it up. That actually was, that happened. Um, it's a fairly common thing in the ancient world. It was a way of, of again, publicly demonstrating um, uh, a prostration, a humility, a humbling, a, a, a grief, or, or um, a repentance. The entire nation, from the king down. All right? And it led with the people, and then the king responded, and then the king decreed, and everybody from the highest noble to the, to the lowest peasant joined in. This is possibly the greatest single revival in human history. This is possibly the single greatest mass response to the preaching of repentance in human history. Numerically, it's greater than Pentecost. Now, it was much shorter-lived. <laughs> the effects of Pentecost are still being felt today. We exist today because of what happened in Acts chapter uh, 1 through 3 and the outpouring of God's grace at, at the Feast of Pentecost. Um, what happened in Nineveh clearly lasted no longer than 40 years, a single generation. But this is still a phenomenally amazing result. Now, critics take issue with it, right? Critics come and they say, this is patently unrealistic, right? An entire nation repenting, Assyrians of, of all people, are, but at the preaching of a single prophet, right? The, the nation that would bow for no man, the nation that would rise up militarily against any force, a nation of extreme pride and matili- uh, military prowess to be brought low in this way, um, especially one obsessed, I mean, just obsessed with winning. Um, And they would point out there are no records outside of the book of Jonah that this ever happened. There's no record in the Assyrian history that there was this momentous um, shifting of of identity and and repentance. Um, So a couple points, a couple points. The first is, and this is, it's a miracle, y'all. It's a miracle, and miracles don't have to be logical, okay? Um, we discussed this with the swallowing of the fish. You either believe there is a supernatural God who exists above the natural laws of the universe, who can, when he wants to, supersede those laws, or you don't, right? If you believe that there is a God who exists above the natural laws of the universe, who can supersede those laws, it's really not that hard to imagine that he could um, provoke this occurring, that he could, in his sovereignty, bring an entire nation to repentance at the preaching of a single prophet, right? Uh, we believe that that is that this really is a miracle, right? It doesn't have to be logical to be reasonable. It just has to be part of God's will. But having said that, there actually is quite a bit of logical historical evidence that makes this plausible. Um, the Assyrian city, as, as we've already discussed, during this season had been humbled. They had been weakened, right? Instead of it ha- being at its strength, it was now at its, at its lowest point of, of, of energy. The, 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 the wick was flickering. The flame was about to go out, right? And, um, uh, and, 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 and we can see that actually in our text. 
when the decree went out, the decree went out from the king and his nobles. Well, why is that important? Well, because um, Assyria didn't lead by committee, right? Assyria was not a coalition builder. Assyria lead by dominance and strength. And when the, and when the leader of Assyria said something, he didn't bring in his nation states to have, have a seat at the table and have authority. The fact that the decree came from the king and his nobles, and the nobles here would have been the leaders of the surrounding nation states um, that were still under Assyrian control, but really now just shared a, uh, had a shared fate with Assyria. The king had to submit, he couldn't decree, he had to submit his ideas uh, to these other leaders. And so the fact that the decree comes out from this council tells us that during this period of time, um, he could no longer lead by decree. He had, he had to submit his will to the will of, of the others. Um, and, and so then that leads us to question, why would this entire council, not, not just the, 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 Nine, you know, the leader of Assyria, Nineveh, why, why these other nation states, why would they respond in this way? Well, there are historical records that are pretty compelling. Um, so Nineveh would have been in a really fragile state at this point, politically, economically. Um, the historical records show that Nineveh had been, uh, or this region had been um, in a, a famine, uh, that had weakened their storehouses. Remember, food was one of the primary forms of wealth in the ancient world, and, and there was none, right? They had gone through a famine, and their storehouses were empty. People were hungry, and they had no ability to feed um, their own people. Um, this would have brought great alarm for, for such a superstitious society. The fact that there was a famine and the food was low would have made them incredibly sensitive um, to begin with, that, that, that there was potentially God or a God uh, seeking to get their, their attention. Beyond that, during this season, there was a tremendous amount of political um, uh, upheaval. They were under assault from outside. Um, they were facing internal revolts. Um, and then you combine this with the fact that there was um, a full solar eclipse um, uh, um, in, in 763 B.C. Uh, so the sun would have been blacked out. Um, right about this, this era. All right, so this remarkable combination of events would have led these religiously superstitious people um, to be eagerly watching the omens. They would have been looking for any sign because at this point, when that many dominoes fall, when you see that much, uh, when you see your bad luck getting that much worse, you start wondering, okay, God or gods, who's upset with us and Why? right? What, what, what are you trying to tell us? You're obviously trying to get our attention, right? Um, and then Jonah shows up, a Hebrew prophet, right? Hebrew prophets didn't visit Nineveh. <laughs> it didn't happen. Hebrew prophets stayed in Israel, right? They might have talked about the Assyrians, but they didn't go visit the Assyrians. And then all of a sudden through the city gates, here comes a, a Hebrew prophet, possibly bleached, right? Still, still potentially carrying physical marks from his three days in his uh, lovely acidic bath in the belly of the fish. And, and he comes in um, with this really bold message, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And he just keeps saying it over and over and over again, right? He's coming in. He's, he's not like shy, He's not like hiding in the bushes, like he's walking down the main street, right? He's, he's bold. I'm guessing he might have even been defiant and resentfully angry. His, his anger at Nineveh um, likely was bleeding out in his delivery of the message of impending judgment, and he's calling for repentance in their strength. Had they been at their strength, they likely would have they would have laughed at Jonah. They potentially would have been offended. He probably would have just ended up being skinned alive. But now, in their weakness, um, they take Jonah as the omen they had been eagerly looking for. Uh, and they respond eagerly, like they grab hold of it. Now, historically, we know this is a short-lived repentance because within 40 years, um, by the time the next generation is coming into power, there is a restoration of ascendancy. There is a, an, a restoration of prosperity, of increased military strength, and they, um, they start acting 
in pride and violence and, and essentially becoming the same culture they had been. So then that leaves us with the question, why is there no record of this event? Why, why in Assyrian records is no, there no record of, of this great turning? Well, I think the better question is why would there be, right? Um, first of all, Assyrian history is far from complete. There are huge gaps in Assyrian history where there are simply no records of anything that took place. And secondly, the records we do have are basically propaganda. When they wrote their history, it was all about how great they were, how their victories were incredible, how their, their leaders were like gods, right? They didn't talk about their defeats. They didn't give realistic descriptions of what took place. They basically just tried to record their glorious history so that when they became the conquerors of the entire world, it would look like this, this never-ending march of victory, right? Um, and so something like this, when, when uh, you know, they, this next generation rises up and they look back and they hear these stories of an entire nation being reduced in power at a point of humiliation, wearing sackcloth and ashes and, and, and fasting, there's nothing in that that would make them want to record that or bear witness to it. Um, in this moment of time, it is a unique convergence of events that God had prepared in advance to set the stage for the preaching of this message. And then he sent the messenger. That's what I want you to catch. God had sovereignly been working in advance of Jonah's arrival to set the stage for that arrival. He had been, they were probably, and I think with good bet, guessing there was some sort of, of God-like hand involved in their misfortunes, and I believe there absolutely was. Um, there was a God-like hand. It was God's hand that was preparing the stage so that when the messenger arrived, the message would, would take root, that it would bear fruit. And we know that, that it did, right? Jesus, when he was speaking to the Pharisees of his day and the Pharisees kept challenging him, give us a sign, give us a sign, give us a sign. He's like, no more signs will be given to you except the sign of Jonah. And the Ninevites, the ones who repented at, at, at Jonah's preaching, man, in the last day, they're going to rise up and their faith is going to condemn you because, because one greater than Jonah is here, right? The true and better Jonah, Jesus himself is standing before you, um, sharing the message of, of, of God's love an invitation to change, to grow, to be restored, um, and you won't take it, right? So you'll be judged. Your pride will be judged by their humility. Um, so at the end of our story, and I'm just going to touch on this briefly this evening, Jonah isn't impressed, right? I don't know if you picked up on that, but Jonah really isn't impressed. An entire nation repents, right? I can't tell you how many preachers would love to have that on their resume, right? I, I can't tell you how many, how, many, how many pastors would love to say, yeah, I just, you know, I preached for three days, an entire city broke down in mourning, and right? No, Jonah is far from impressed with himself or impressed with the city um, of Nineveh, um, Jonah, the, the reluctant prophet, has become Jonah, uh, the resentful messenger, right? And we're told, and we find out here, I've, I've referenced it throughout the sermon series, but we find out here why Jonah was so reluctant to come, right? It wasn't because he was afraid for his safety. It wasn't because, um, it, it, in verse 2, it tells us very clearly, chapter 4, verse 2, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to fly to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. That's why I didn't come, right? Instead of being overjoyed at the outpouring of grace, instead of being incredibly humbled and overwhelmed that an entire nation would respond to his preaching, he becomes resentful and angry and says, I knew that was going to happen. That's why I didn't want to come, God, because you're a merciful God of steadfast love and rich in mercy. Yeah, I don't think he's quoting this fondly here. Um, I think he's kind of throwing it at God, like, I knew this about you, right? He's actually quoting um, from uh, the Old Testament in Exodus 34, where God revealed himself to Israel right after they had entered into the Mosaic Covenant. And, and he revealed himself and said, hey, you need to know this is the kind of God I am. In, in Exodus uh, 34, verses 6 and 7, God reveals himself and he says, look, I am a God rich in mercy, a God of steadfast love and mercy, slow to anger. I will judge, but I am slow to anger and rich 
in mercy. Steadfast love. It's one of the most beautiful words in the Old Testament. Anytime you see this phrase, steadfast love and faithfulness, you'll see that phrase all over the Old Testament. When you're reading through the Old Testament, every single time you see it, it's a reference to Exodus 34. Because that's how God revealed himself. He said, this is the most important thing you need to know about me. I'm a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. That word steadfast love comes from the Hebrew word hesed. Hesed is a profound word for love. It's covenant love. It's a love that that is, uh, in a sense, a one-way love. It's God saying, I commit myself to you for your good, and in fact will create a structure that will then take you to blessing. That's what covenant love is. I will create a covenant that in love will deliver you into blessing. Has said love. It is unwavering. It is unbreakable. It is never ending. It is absolute in its nature uh, and unwavering in its commitment. Has said love cannot be turned aside. And that's exactly why um, Jonah's a little freaked out because you got this God who is, is eager to create covenant love with anyone who will respond to that love. Right? He is rich in mercy. He is slow to anger, and he is eager to enter into that covenant love with anybody who will respond. He is always inviting people in. He doesn't stop. He's always inviting more. And the problem is, he's often inviting people we don't want at the party. He's inviting people we don't want at the table. He's inviting people we don't want in our living rooms or part of our home. We don't want a part of our family. It's like, will you just stop? We're good now. I'm glad I got in. But that's it. See, in Jonah's experience, instead of responding in joy, he actually responds in depression. See, when God's love gives a welcome to your enemies, you may end up resenting his unwelcome grace. And the reluctant prophet, becoming a resentful messenger, says, isn't it better for me just to die? All right, we're going to look at that resentment more next week because that leads us into kind of the final chapter. This week, I want to take a few valuable insights away from these remarkable events of what happened when Jonah arrived at the city um, and, and saw such a dramatic turnaround, right? So, beginning point. We have, like Jonah, been entrusted a message, right? Jonah was entrusted a very, very simple message. We've been entrusted a very, very simple message. And sometimes we are, like Jonah, reluctant messengers. Um, All right, believer. If you're a believer, if you are here this evening and you consider yourself a follower of Christ, uh, if you have believed in Jesus, if you have claimed him as your hero, your savior, um, and have... Um, taken hold of the grace offered him, uh, offered to you through the death, burial, and resurrection uh, of Christ. Uh, you, have, you have received a blessing, but you have also been given a commission. Because entering into covenant relationship with God through the work of Christ not only opens the door to all of God's blessings, but sends you out as a representative of those blessings. You have been blessed with forgiveness. You have been blessed with the removal of your guilt and your shame. You have been made new in Christ, and you have been sent out with that message. Matthew 28, at the very end of the Gospels, when Jesus meets with his disciples, we have the the passage that's called the Great Commission, and, and, and his last words to his disciples, and Matthew, he's meeting with them, and he's like, look, I, I want you to uh, go, right? Literally, as you are going, I want you to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? As you are going, as you are living your life, here's my commission to you. I'm leaving. This is my great and final command to you. As you are living your life, as you are going, be disciples who make disciples. Be people who walk in my grace and share my grace. Be people who are walking in a profound, growing experience of the gospel and sharing that gospel with others. Sharing it so that they might also enter in and become part of the family. Be a disciple who makes disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Introducing them, in other words, into their new identity, their new covenant identity in Christ. Right? They're no longer who they were. They are now who He's made them to be. They're no longer defined by what they did. They are now defined by what He has done. They're no longer covered by their guilt. They are covered by His glory. Be disciples who make disciples. 
In Acts chapter 2, when, when, right when, when Jesus is going to ascend into heaven, his last meeting with uh, the disciples in, in the book of Acts, right as he's leaving, he looks at him, he says, I'm taking off for now, but you are going to be my witnesses. That's, that's the marching orders I'm leaving you with. My last command to you, my last word to you, you will be my witnesses to, to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, which for them would have meant, you know, your own, your own cul-de-sac, your own regional area, and, and then even out to the very ends of the earth, right? Uh, regionally, locally, and internationally. That, that's, that, those were his final words, and he left. That was it, man. That was his final word. In both those situations, when he is meeting with his disciples, he's like, man, it's the last thing I'm walking away from, the last thing I want in your memory, the last thing I want you to hear, the most important thing you need to carry away from this. So you're to be my messengers. You, follower of Christ, are called by God to be a messenger of grace. You have been entrusted the message of the gospel, and you are called to be a messenger carrying that message. Now, let's be honest. Most of us really aren't faithful messengers, okay? So if that's you, join the club. Don't raise your hand. I'll do it for you. Because the reality is most of us struggle with this. Most of us struggle with this, right? We love the blessings of grace, Sometimes we honestly resent the commission of grace. We love to be blessed by God, but we resent having to invite others into the blessing. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that, right? Some of us are reluctant messengers like Jonah. Some of us might even be resentful messengers like Jonah, right? We don't want to share the good news with them, right? I don't want to say anything to them that is kind or inviting or grace-filled. I just want to defeat them or silence them or... Or, or whatever, right? Some of us might be fearful messengers. The reason we are not faithful in our commission is because we're simply afraid. Who knows what? Afraid of what people will think of us, afraid of what people will say of us, afraid of what people might, might do to us or how they might challenge us or, or they might make us feel shame or they might make us feel uh, unintelligent or they might have a question we can't answer and we're afraid and because of our fear. We sidestep our commission. Some of us are reluctant messengers because we don't feel qualified. Right? We don't have a lot of Bible knowledge. I haven't spent a lot of time in the Word. Steve, I'm not like you. I haven't read this whole thing. And I, I haven't been to theology school. And, and neither have I, by the way. Um, but, you know, some of you feel unqualified. You know, it's like, I'm, I... I don't know enough. I'm not trained, right? I'll leave this to professionals, or at least to the people who know more than I do. Some of you may have tried in the past and failed, or at least felt like you failed. And so you feel like a failed messenger. The reason you're a reluctant messenger is because you feel like a failed messenger. You tried to share the gospel. You tried to share the good news with somebody. It just didn't go well. They didn't receive it well. You stumbled over your words. You're not even sure you said anything coherent. They definitely walked away thinking you were weird. Right? Or maybe you faithfully delivered the message, and at the end they were like, you know what, thanks, no thanks. And you just left kind of, man, spent. Like, I tried, I tried. And I'm just not very good at this. I guess this isn't my gift, right? Some of you are, are reluctant messengers because you think you're supposed to have some sort of gift and not just a commission, and you don't think you have that gift. Right? Other people have that gift. I, I know of people, or at least I've heard that I should know of people, that are really, really eager about sharing their faith. There are people out there that are just, they're just bleeding the gospel everywhere they go and everybody responds, and that's just not me. I don't have the gift. So how can I be expected to do what isn't natural for me to do? How can I be expected to operate in things I'm not gifted to operate in? You guys, what do we do when we don't feel qualified? What do, what do we do when we've tried and it doesn't work? What do we do when, let's just be honest, we just don't want to do it? All right, two, four points coming out of this text for us this evening. First, you really need to know this. God uses flawed people to reach flawed people. God uses flawed people to reach flawed people. Clearly, Jonah is a flawed dude, right? I mean, 
one of the reasons I absolutely love the Bible. Unlike ancient Assyrian history, ancient Hebrew literature, man, it doesn't pull any punches. It tells it exactly like it was. There's no trying to make Jonah look glorious here. There's no trying to polish the brass and hide the flaws, right? There's no, this is a great triumph. The entire book is about how Jonah is lousy. God uses flawed people to reach flawed people. Um, and this is really good news because honestly, that's all he's got, y'all. I don't know who you think out, is out there that isn't flawed, right? I don't, I don't know who you think is out there that, oh yeah, they're, they're qualified to do it. I'm obviously not, because um, they're not there, right? All God has is flawed people, and that's um, a, a beautiful gift of grace. Yeah, but Steve, I struggle, man. I struggle. I struggle with, I struggle with sin. I've tried to defeat this sin, and I just can't. I have tried to overcome these resentments, and I can't. I've tried to get a hold on my anger, and I can't. I've tried to, to I've tried, and I'm just, Steve, I, I'm such a mess. Surely I'm disqualified from, from being a messenger, right? And I carry around so much guilt about where I fall short, and I carry around so much shame about how I'm not who I'm supposed to be. I know I'm not. How am I supposed to go tell others I feel like a hypocrite? Right? I feel like such a hypocrite. All right, first of all, when you're giving the good message, good news of the gospel, you're never inviting people to become like you, right? The, the message of the gospel isn't, look at my life, don't you want some of this? I'm so good. Don't you want to be good like me? Right? Discipleship is never about making people into your image. Discipleship is about inviting people into the image of Christ. What makes you qualified to be a messenger is not that you've got your act together, but that you've received grace. Believer, have you received grace? Then you are not only qualified, you are commissioned. God uses flawed people to reach flawed people. The Apostle Paul even struggled with this. There's an amazing passage. I'm going to put it up behind me. This is 2 Corinthians 3, verses 4 through 6. And, and he's kind of talking because the Corinthians are kind of challenging him. Who are you and all this? And he's wrestling and, 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 and he's like, what are my qualifications? What are my qualifications? And he says this, not that we, and he's speaking about himself and his, his other apostolic helpers, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim as anything is coming from ourselves. In other words, we're not... We don't claim that we're good enough to do this or that, that the results of what's happening from our preaching is because we're good enough, right? But our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills and the Spirit gives life. He makes us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant. He's like, man, you want to know what makes me qualified? It's not me. It's God. The Greek word for sufficient in many translations is translated adequate. And I, I've always loved that. New American Standard, um, which is a version that, that was the version I read for the first forever. I love the ESV, the version we use, but it uses the word adequate here. And I've always thought, man, that's not a huge compliment. <laughs> when someone's like, hey, how am I doing? Yeah, you're adequate. <laughs> right? You're adequate, unless it's God. When God says you're adequate, that's one of the most empowering statements you could ever hear. Believer in Christ, you are adequate. You are sufficient. You have everything you need. You don't have to be perfect because you can't be perfect. You don't have to have it all together because you can't have it all together. You don't have to be a perfect person to invite people to grace. You just have to, have to be somebody who has, who, has, who has had the drink at the fountain of grace and invites others to have the drink. You need to be somebody who has been undone by the grace of God and invites others to be undone. You need to be somebody who's been remade in love and inviting people in to be remade by love. You know what you need more than anything? You need humility. And the reason you're reluctant is because you're proud. Humble people share a profound message of grace. I needed grace, I received grace. Not look at me, I got my act together. 
don't you want to have your act together too? Look at me, my life's so much better. Don't, want you, don't you want your life to be better? That's not the message. I was broken and I was in need and God met me in my need. I was bankrupt and God made me rich. I was inadequate and God made me adequate. Listen, God doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. Did you catch that? God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. Believer in Christ, you're called. Which means that you are adequate. You're qualified. Flawed people. God uses flawed people to reach flawed people. Secondly, the gospel carries its own power. This is really good news. The gospel carries its own power. The word gospel literally means good news. Elangelion is a broken up, a Greek word broken up into two parts, good proclamation, good announcement, good news. The gospel is good news. And that's, that's awesome, because what that means is that you're, you're not a salesman. When you're sharing the gospel, your goal isn't to close the deal. It's not your job to to take control of how people... Res- your job, if, if the gospel is good news, your job is to do what? Be a messenger. That's your job. Your job is to share the news. Your job is to deliver the message. That's what a messenger does. A messenger delivers the message. Right? The problem is a lot of times we approach evangelism as this propositional thing where where it's my job to present it in such a way that I can close the deal, that I can get you to come to faith, that I can, I start taking responsibility, not just for delivering the message, but for the results of the message. And that's incredibly arrogant and theologically stupid. The gospel carries its own message. You are an ambassador for Christ. You're not the Holy Spirit. The ambassador of Christ represents the king and delivers the message that's been entrusted to them, right? You've been entrusted with a holy and a sacred message that Jesus, the great hero, lived the life we should have lived, died the death we deserved to die, and rose again so that I could be cleansed of everything that was broken in me and I could be made whole in everything that was right in him, right? It's a simple, profound, holy message. See, the only thing we can take responsibility for is trying to get the message right. That's what we're called to do. Get the message right. We don't take responsibility for the results, and that's really, really good news because it doesn't mean we're a failure if people don't respond. Nor, by the way, does it mean there's anything special about us if people do. Personal, Jonah's personal glory wasn't increased by their, uh, Nineveh's obedience, nor was his faithfulness diminished had they not. The message carries its own power. You guys, it's like a seed. Jesus compares the gospel to a seed, and, 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 and we're to be like sowers, casting out the seed, right? And we throw it on all the different soils, right? We don't determine. It's not us to figure out which soil's good. You throw it on the good soil. You throw it on the bad soil. You throw it on the, on the path. You throw it where there are rocks. You just throw it everywhere, right? We're supposed to be incredibly uh, liberal with the, with the sowing of the seed, but we can't take responsibility for the life in the seed. We deliver the seed, but it is the seed that carries its life. We plant a seed, but we can't take responsibility for what it does once it's in the soil. But you know what it does? Seed does require, right? It requires us to plant it. The seed carries its own power. The gospel carries its own power, but we are still required to deliver it. We are still required to plant it. We are still required to be messengers delivering the message. The gospel has to be shared, y'all. And it has to be shared with words. It's not good enough to say, I'm going to live my life in such a way that people are just going to know. Really? You think you're that, that, that transcendently good at this thing? Right? That people are going to look at you and go, man, I think I may see your halo. Holy cow. Tell me, tell me more about this halo thing. How did you get so holy, right? It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way, right? It's nonsense. 
preach the gospel and if necessary use words. That's nonsense. That's like saying, you know, um, give me your phone number and if necessary give me the numbers. What? It doesn't make sense. The gospel's a message and it requires words to deliver the message. You are not sharing the gospel if you are not telling people about Jesus. You're not sharing the gospel if you're just out there being a kind person doing nice things. You're not sharing the gospel if you're, if you're just showing up at the checkout line, paying for the next person's groceries, and then random acts of kindness. That's good. Great. Do it. I love it. But you are not being a faithful messenger. To be a messenger means delivering the message. To be an ambassador means to take the sacred message that has been entrusted to you and with reverence to deliver that message. The gospel carries its own power, but it does require us to deliver it. Thirdly, God is faithful to the message when we are faithful to be messengers. All right, don't ask me why God set it up like this. I ask all the time. Why in the world, when Jesus left, he just did this incredible thing, right? He had just been raised from the dead. He had just conquered death. He had just undone the cosmic treason that had undone the entire created order, right? He had just done kind of an important thing. And what does he do with this incredible message that has the power to transform not just individual people's lives, but the entire created order? What does he do? He looks at his disciples and says, it's up to you. I'm entrusting you the message, go tell people. Right? I mean, he could have sent angels out to the four corners of the earth. He, he could have rented airplanes before they existed. He could have put the message clear. He could have shown up in every nation at the same time. He, but he didn't. It is part of God's plan to work out his perfect and complete resurrection through imperfect and broken people. I don't know why. He put the power of the resurrection in this message and then he gave that message to us. And he says, be faithful. Be faithful with this incredibly powerful message. Be faithful. Live it out and share it so that others might taste of the fruit of what I have done. When we are unfaithful with the message of the gospel, and I know some of you are so theologically sharp that you've become dumb. Seriously. God's sovereign, so He's going to do whatever He wants to do even if I... Listen to me. All you got to do is look at history. When we do not faithfully carry the message of the gospel into the world... The gospel lies dormant, and people die. This incredible message has been entrusted to us and the sovereign God of the universe who can do whatever He wants, whenever He wants, decided to work through the commission of broken people like you and me. Will God do it anyway? God will do whatever He wants to do. His power is not limited by your ability or your willingness. And his, his, He will redeem and restore all of creation. And at the end of the day, it'll all be by His grace and for His glory. And there's not going to be anyone who stands up and says, I was faithful, therefore I get a part of the glory. No, you weren't. God's going to do what He wants to do, and He's going to do it in His way. But it is really funny how we will often try to use God's faithfulness as an excuse for our lack of obedience. God calls us to be faithful. Not to use His faithfulness as an excuse for our unfaithfulness. There was a young guy that I met. I've had, I've had to grow in my gift of preaching the gospel. I don't consider myself as somebody who has the gift of evangelism. I don't, I don't think I do. Um, 
when I first became a believer, man, I, I took this to heart and I tried and it was awkward and it was hard and I had really, really, like I just created painful conversations for me and for others. Um, sometimes I was just too zealous. I was over the top, like, ah. And then other times I was too timid, right? If they showed any resistance, I just, okay, I disappeared. There were other times that, um, and there were, there were long seasons where honestly I just withdrew and I was like, I'm not, I'm just, not into it. I'm not good at this. This isn't my thing. But there was this young guy. I was, a, I was a teacher, and there was a student who was, he wasn't one of my students, actually. He was hanging around the school off hours creating problems. He was a vandal and a thief and, um, and a troublemaker. He was a troubled kid. And, um, and, and the board was coming down hard, and they wanted to bring police action, and they wanted to do all this sort of stuff. And I couldn't argue with him. And I decided one day just to grab the kid, um, not physically, um, and, and play some basketball with him. I don't play basketball. I'm not any good. He wasn't either. Good. So we just were two guys throwing a ball up in the air. Occasionally it hit the rim. Um, and I didn't know how to do this. But I remember I told him everything I knew about the gospel from the book of Genesis till the end of time. It took me two hours. Yeah, that wasn't really efficient. I didn't have polished words. I didn't have any fancy, but he was receptive. I don't know how receptive. Like, I shared it with him. We had a connection. Um, I loved reaching out to troubled kids. That was one of the things that I enjoyed doing in education. And, and for whatever reason that night, I just felt compelled to do this. I never saw that kid again. Uh, he got killed by a car. Um, I have no idea. What I do know is that I'm incredibly thankful that I had that opportunity. Incredibly thankful. And I pray that there was a, a faith response in his heart, that he yielded, that he heard the invitation of love in a way that he had never heard it before. That's hope. God's in it. God's over it. It's not up to me. But God put me in that situation, and God allowed me to do that. And it wasn't until afterwards that I realized just how incredibly important that it was. trust the faithfulness of God. So this is the final point. You have to share grace in order to grow in grace. You have to share grace in order to grow in grace. Um, here's the thing. I'm not going to stand up here and, and, and do the old school thing. You know, do you want to be standing before the throne of God and have somebody come before God and God is like, go away, I never knew you, and then for God to look at you and say, you had the opportunity to share the gospel with them, right? Guilt you into this thing. Um, that's completely unbiblical. Um, what I just described to you is pretty much heretical. Um, and, and the preachers who share that have really, really bad theology. Um, God is going to do what God does. God's sovereignty is not limited by our lack of faithfulness. God's grace is never limited by our lack of ability. You're not strong enough to derail the will of God, praise God. Okay? But you do need to hear this. It is essential that you learn how to share grace if you want to grow in grace. Grace unleashes its power in movement. You were never given the grace of God to simply hold as your personal treasure. You were given the grace of God that you might share it with others. And its power is unleashed in your life in transition as you learn to receive and to give. The reality is you are an evangelist. You are. You have the gift of evangelism already. The question is, is, what's your gospel? Is your gospel the cardinals? I mean, what, what could you talk about right now that you'd get really excited and talk to me, talk my ear off? What topic could I bring up that you would just be lit up and, 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 and you wouldn't even really care if I was paying attention, right? I might be giving all the signs of like, I'm kind of bored here. And you don't even notice. You're so excited. Is it, is it, I mean, we, we all know the CrossFitters are like this, right? But, but it goes beyond that, right? Essential oils, right? Yeah? Yeah, for real. Um, Cardinals, Cubs, sports. I mean, everybody's an evangelist because everybody gets excited about their good news. You guys, what message could be more exciting about the love of God? Made available to us through the work of Christ. You know what it's like when you share your joy with somebody and then they light up in joy 
right? You're a Cubs fan and you find somebody else who's a Cubs fan and you start talking stats, right? Well, it works for the Cardinals too. Or, or you're like getting on your essential oil thing and they're over here like, yeah, but have you heard about this oil? You're like, yeah, I heard about that oil. And how did, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know how, you know how it, 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 your joy increases when you share it? Are you following me? There's nothing like sharing the love of God with others and then seeing the seed take root. There's no greater joy in life. If you have never been used by God to introduce somebody to Christ, you should be jealous for that experience because I'm telling you, you're missing out. Man, your motivation shouldn't be guilt. Your motivation should be grace. I want more of that. I want more of that joy. I'm telling you, your joy will be increased. Your experience of the gospel will be increased. Your, your spiritual growth will be increased as you go through the process of simply learning how to share your faith with others. And you learn how to be a faithful messenger. Even if it's not well received, you receive grace and the transference of grace. Even if the seed that is planted doesn't grow. Even if it's hard and awkward. You are blessed because your experience of grace is increased in the process of sharing grace. You guys, it's worth risking someone's opinion of you. It is worth overcoming your fears. It is worth stumbling. It is worth maybe somebody asking you a question you don't know how to answer to. The reality is you're afraid of a bunch of hypothetical questions you'll never be asked. It is worth it is worth it. So who is God calling you to share the message with? Where has God opened a door that you can walk through? Ambassador of Christ, to whom are you to carry the message? All right, I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. We'll share communion in a moment. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that... Um, you are over this whole thing because if this was up to us, man, <laughs> that'd be bad news. Um, and yet it is entrusted to us. This incredible message that contains the very power of resurrection is entrusted to us. Lord, will you awaken us to the genuine, authentic urgency that comes with the gospel? God, you ache that people far from you might be brought near. You ache that those who are alienated from your love might experience your love. You, you died and rose again that a new humanity might be created, a new humanity recreated in the image of Christ and his resurrection, delivered from, from uh, the bondage to the cosmic treason that has enslaved us from, from Genesis chapter 3. Lord, will you, will you light us up with the honor of being ambassadors? Will you light us up with the excitement of being messengers? Will you light us up with the, the invitation to grow in grace by sharing that grace with others? Spirit, help us to not simply be a culture drunk on grace. Help us to be a culture rich in sharing that grace eager to invite others to the table. Guys, take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.